certainly if you're working within the law, you're reasonably skilled if you've got there in the first place. So choose a direction that makes you feel alive and makes you feel inspired, even if it's something that's dry and something that's it doesn't matter, just whatever it is that makes you feel that you're happy and, and fulfilled. And then take chances, say yes more, but within the scope of what's reasonable to you. Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life. So let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. What's up, guys? Today I had the pleasure of talking with Sarah Carnegie. Sarah is the legal director of the International Bar Association. And they're doing a lot of really fascinating research there. And we dove into some of those topics. One of them being mental well-being in the legal profession. And... Things around mental well-being always stick out to me because the core of communicating effectively is your mental well-being. And so we dive into that a bit. The second topic was a fascinating one and one I don't think too much about, which is modern-day slavery. It's really interesting that the International Bar Association is digging into that. And we talked about some of the ways that they're broadening visibility into that very big challenge that I think a lot more people need more visibility into. And the third topic we got into was the research around gender inclusivity, um, especially at the most senior levels in the legal industry, why it exists in the first place, the impact it's having, and, and what we can start doing to drive greater inclusivity. So Sarah and her team are just doing a lot of tremendous work and research and advocacy around the globe, and I really enjoyed going deeper into these different topics with her. Sarah, welcome to the Art of Communication podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Nice to see you. Thanks very much for inviting me, Greg. Yeah, you guys are working on so many different fascinating things, and I think they all cross with communication in one way or another. So I think we're going to get into a lot of really interesting topics. But I'd love to just start by getting a little bit of background from you on how you ended up at the International Bar to begin with, and just a little bit about your background. Thank you. Well, I've been there for the last two years, so I joined in January of 2019, and it, the, to be perfectly frank, the way I got there was through being headhunted. And I <laughs> had never heard of the International Bar Association because my area of legal practice was firstly quite domestic. So I was based in the UK and my, my immediate activity was primarily based in the UK. And then secondly, I'm a criminal practitioner of background. So I'm a criminal barrister and I've worked in various government roles after leaving my practice in, in self-employed you know, chambers context. And so, you know, I, I'd not really had any reason to be affiliated to an organization that primarily looks after those in commercial and private practice. So that's kind of the backdrop as to why I kind of ended up getting involved. And I was approached, I explored it, I learned more about it. And I thought this looks like a really interesting organization. And there's more to it than just the commercial practice. Mm -hmm. There is the Human Rights Institute, there's the other work that they're doing across ethical behaviors. There's so much going on. And, and I figured this could be quite a different role. I've been in the sort of public sector, the civil service for so long that it was time to try something a bit different. And I like the idea of travel and I like the idea of meeting all sorts of people from different backgrounds and different practice areas. So, so that was essentially 
the both the approach and then the rationale for deciding I'd, I'd go for it. Obviously, I had to go through the interview process, and and that was you know as it as it should be. But yeah, it was quite a big change from what I'd done before. Very cool. Took a job for travel. I, I, probably the worst time for travel, which you didn't know was going to happen, but obviously for lots of other reasons as well. So and you get course, the travel, the travel plenty. <laughs> I hope so again. I mean, I, I've only been there just over a year before COVID hit. So I had been fairly lucky with some of the travel we've done, been to South Korea and Tanzania and obviously Europe and, and a few standard places, the States. And it's so fantastic experience within about 15 months. And the saddest thing was that I had some amazing trips lined up with legitimate work reasons, but I was going to Ethiopia, Panama, uh, Lithuania and, and Miami. Those were the trips that were immediately booked and ready. And yeah, all of it, all of it canceled. Yeah, very interesting. Now, obviously, you've been to, uh, you know, you've looked at the legal system and uh, I guess the legal culture in a bunch of different regions around the world. So I'd love to just get a quick feel for you on kind of how different it is in different places around the world. Obviously, communication is very different. Legal systems are very different. Maybe the people in the customs are very different. So I'd just love to get your feel on what it's like kind of dealing with so many different regional legal folks. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, it's interesting that you ask that because the one thing that's always got to me when I'm working in this environment is just the extraordinary nature of people's ability to communicate in English, notwithstanding where they are in the world. It's the mm. use of language, which I find, you know, I've got so much respect for people who can operate in another language and speak in technical detail about what they're doing so they can engage both in a written and a and, and an oral format. And it's just, it really is always a source of, of enormous slight embarrassment for me that, you know, I don't I don't have that same skill, although I can speak French pretty well. And, and you know, I studied languages to a point, but you know, I've got people on my team who are from different countries. So English isn't their first language. And yet they operate with colleagues with our very senior membership as if it's their first language. And I think that's a really First of all, really important part of all of this is being able to understand one another. But to some extent, there is this arrogance that everything will take place in English. Therefore, to some extent, most people are doing you know, brilliantly across their ability to communicate. But you do have to make allowances at times for certain lack of understanding across phrases that you might use and, and the way that you communicate. There has to be clarity in that and clarity in how you write to people because of that language issue. But in terms of, you know, I, I've been amazed by the nature of people so far. People are generally incredibly kind and keen to volunteer and enthusiastic about their love for the job and, and their loyalty for the organisation, which whichever country they're in, there are some incredibly dedicated people across every discipline of law. And they're all keen to try and make the global practice in that area better. So they're keen to understand what's happening in other jurisdictions, what the limitations might be. And I think mental well-being is, and, and the bullying and sexual harassment work are interesting examples of where culture plays a big part in how that issue is perceived. Mm -hmm. And yet those that are involved in our working groups to try and address these things all have the same goal, which is to improve how that works for people, wherever they are in the world, whatever the system they're operating in. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's been a really interesting thing to learn the things that we all have in common and, and to overcome some of the, you know, some of those inevitable differences about what an issue and how it's perceived, what an issue is and how it's perceived, and to try and elevate the importance of it without seeming to be arrogant and making westernized assumptions mm -hmm. about what matters in one country must be relevant in another. 
And so you have to find ways of developing evidential methods to, to demonstrate that, to overcome that sense that you're trying to somehow assume that this should be of importance in that jurisdiction. So that's, that's I think, been the key on those two particular subject areas. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned a few there. Just give us a high level of some of the core projects you guys are working on right now, because I was fascinated to learn all the different areas that you and your organization are looking to make a difference in. Yeah, I mean, we my team is relatively small, but we work across all of the different committees and constituents. So the organization has it, it's essentially in two parts, if you like. So it's practitioners and law firms. So we've got about 230 different law, big, big law firms who are members, about 100,000 members, and also then bar associations or law societies. So we have 190 of those. So we, we span pretty much every jurisdiction and we have membership that is enormous, really, when, when you look at that. So the projects that we're covering in my team can be on anything, but as long as it has global relevance. So whilst we're a relatively small team, our power comes from working with members and comes from working with other international organizations, such as the UN, the OECD, the World Bank, the EU institutions. So we often partner up to give us greater resources to affect change or to bring about a product. So what we're looking at at the moment, just to give you a very sort of brief, brief, this is by no means all of them, but we've got different project focuses working on things like mental well-being, we had bullying and sexual harassment that, that, that pre preceded that, and that's still to some extent ongoing, but we've certainly done a huge amounts there. We've got a big project on gender equality within senior parts of the profession, across all parts of the profession, not just private practice. We've got projects on cybersecurity, on modern slavery, on young lawyers' needs and demands and issues, and on legal professional privilege or client confidentiality and the definition of that principle. Why does it matter to have confidence in terms of your dialogue with your lawyer what's what's the kind of rationale behind that and it all fits under the overarching umbrella of the rule of law which is inherent in everything that we're doing very interesting so many different different realms that you're diving into i'd like to dig into a few of those if we could Uh, the first is around the mental well-being project and that projects like that research around that area always gets my attention because I, i think the key to any communication, the key to being a better communicator is that self-awareness piece and feeling good about yourself. It all starts there. So I'd love to hear a bit just about that research and what you're learning as far as the mental well-being of legal profession goes. Thank you. Well, this was an initiative of the former president of the IBA. So there's a a new president is elected every two years. And this is Horacio Bernardes de Neto, who's a Brazilian practitioner. And and he was very keen to understand and build on the work of the American Bar Association, which had focused in on substance abuse and significant concerns about levels of substance abuse in the legal profession, which Mm -hmm. you can imagine has all sorts of concerns that might be attached to it. And we branched it. We were having conversations with him about what that might look like and how that could be widened out beyond just one event, which initially was foreseen as as there being a a big kind of panel discussion and big event at our annual conference. And we decided to make it something bigger and more substantive and hopefully longer lasting in terms of impact. So we embarked on a survey which began in July of last year, so mid-COVID time, and it lasted, it was open for about five months. And during that time, we managed to get just over 3,000 global responses and a couple of hundred institutional responses. 
So it was in two parts. You either filled it out as an individual or as an institution, which could be a bar, a bar association or, or a law firm. But that would then be your response on behalf of that body. And it, the, the, response, the response rate you know, was reasonable. I think a lot of people have survey fatigue. We'd have liked to get even more, but it was still statistically valid for us to draw conclusions about what's going on out there. And I think one of the causes of greatest concern, which, which did actually fit existing research, was that the index scores banned on the World Health Organization indexing scale showed that in the law profession, the legal profession, we are below average. So that means we're pretty much below where we should be in terms of average mental well-being scores, which, which isn't a good start. And, and we found issues that, again, won't be that surprising, but it didn't seem to matter which jurisdiction. There was still a stigma attached to admitting that you had some well-being issues and I appreciate the scale of well-being and mental health is, is, is a big one. But notwithstanding that, the stigma was 44, 41% of respondents showed that they really believed they couldn't confide or tell their employer if they had some well-being concerns because they felt it would damage their career. So again, you know, that's a fairly consistent finding with what we anticipated. We did find that in 20, over 20% of countries, there was just nothing in place, no support, no body that would look after you or operate some sort of helpline. And again, we, we fully expected, we thought it might even be higher than that, to be honest. It was universally felt that employers need to do more. I think notwithstanding what they say they're doing, the perception they may have may be very different from those on the ground who are living it, who don't believe that these things are necessarily often more than a tick box exercise to just demonstrate they have a policy. But the belief in that policy is definitely quite fragile. And we did. We also saw that there was a disproportionate effect in terms of well-being scores on the young, on women, on those who identify as ethnic, ethnic minorities and on those who have a disability. So, again, people with those characteristics were showing as being consistently lower on the well-being scores. Interesting. Yeah, and it's not terribly surprising. I mean, obviously, it's a very hard job, a very demanding job. And there's you know, a lot of places around the world, there's a negative stigma, I think, about being a lawyer from people outside of the legal side of things. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's lots of things that go into the mental health side of things. But what are some of the solutions you're seeing or, or thinking about or even at that point yet well, that leaders and law firms can start to provide? Yeah, well, we've just released the data in the very limited sense today, actually. So it's on our website. We have, thank you. Very a, a, yeah, no, it's good timing. But I put out a press release that gives those headline points and obviously navigates people to the website where you can check in on data in more detail. So you can see the different graphs that show you what's happening in terms of regional differences, age differences, profession types. So whether it's law firm or chambers or in-house or academic, wherever. So we're trying to give that sense of dig into it if you wish. There will be a report and there will be tools that we will try and direct people to to make it more of a resource hub over time. What we're anticipating at the moment is, is a range of different activities. And we've accumulated this fabulous task force of people who are truly global and who are experts in this area or if they're not experts, they want to be and they're engaged and they're enthusiastic. So they're both a mix of IBA members and non-members who, who represent, like I say, a large number of jurisdictions. And they are also, many of them, they've worked for organisations like Law Care or organisations that essentially are focused purely on well-being and support services for lawyers and, and engaged on the training side and, and the policy setting. So... We've got this great body of expertise, 
And one of the first challenges we're saying to them, and, and we meet on a reasonably frequent basis, and we've only had two meetings so far, but the plan is that we carry on and we, we set out different tasks. But we're looking to have awareness raising events in as many jurisdictions as we can, certainly those that the expert group come from, which means they need to take responsibility for hosting a big panel discussion, bringing in the bars, bringing in the big law firms, but most importantly, trying to get leadership engaged. Because if leaders can tell the story of when they themselves were struggling and what they did, then that adds credibility to the issue, to the belief that that firm is actually genuinely engaged and to individuals' ability to then seek help, support or or find solutions. So I think we're looking to do a big awareness raising piece, which tries to tackle the stigma side to some extent. And then we're also looking to try and create resources that give best practice, that perhaps develop training and, and essentially try and engage at all levels to make it's essentially a thing that we all own. And it, it's not seen as a top down. It's not seen as a bottom up. It, it's it's trying to bring it in to some general conversation and not just, again, have that perception that people are doing things for the sake of it. But it, it doesn't really mean anything. So we're still in these early days of discussions. We know what the data is. We've got academics involved with us, psychologists. And we want to try and it's a call to action, really. This is, you know, do you as a business want to see your staff absent on sick leave or or essentially only presenting themselves because they're fearful, but then making mistakes, creating bad environments through lack of motivation and dysfunctional relationships with colleagues, then having misconduct cases with the PR reputational impact that that might have. So, So you can see, you can try and make the business as well as the human case as to why this matters. And then hopefully you'll start to see people taking this seriously because, you know, the Deloitte study from last year showed that in the UK, the estimated cost to UK employers as a consequence of, of these sorts of issues was around £42 billion. Once you start looking at it in those figures, you can see why there is a real, a real business case for taking more positive and more impactful action. And, and you, th- you think about it, I mean, in legal firm, I mean, in legal space or any other space, Right. If I am not in a good mental place, if I if I'm in fear of losing my job or fear of how I'm going to be perceived or just low self-esteem or depressed or anxiety or substance abuse, all those things impact. Am I going to put that idea out there that might be innovative, that that might be successful? Nobody else is thinking about. Am I going to take that chance or that risk? Am I going to bring this up to my boss? Am I going to have that conversation with my coworker? You're not doing those things if you're not in a good mental place. And so that's where I think a lot of that cost comes. There's obviously productivity, but then also around innovation and and problem solving and those kinds of things. One of the things I love about what you guys do is how action-oriented you are. You're not just about the research. You're about how can we use this research to make real steps forward, and not just in a lip service way either, but in a way that really brings leaders together in your industry to think about and take action on, how can we fix this, which I love. Now, Shift to the second topic. I was just really surprised when we talk about modern slavery that that was an area that you were focused on as the Global Bar Association. So tell me how you guys ended up focusing on that and kind of what what you're looking to accomplish there. Well, I think there's there's a range of factors. Sometimes it's not just one suggestion, but it's just an accumulation of activities and issues. So in the first instance, our executive director, Mark Ellis, has been really motivated by this issue. He's, you know, he's he's heavily engaged on the human rights agenda. And of course, you've got the Human Rights Institute that is run as an entity affiliated to the IBA. 
And he'd already applied for a sum of money through a specific fund that we have in order to make a video. He wanted to make a short film that demonstrated an issue around modern slavery to demonstrate as, as well that the IBA was engaged on this issue. So that was the sort of backdrop that he'd done a couple of years ago. He'd secured a pot of cash and he wanted a film made. Now, coupled with that, my, my team, um, I have a dedicated business and human rights lawyer. So her work has been looking at the, the human rights implications of what business is doing, whether that and a lot of that involves what does your supply chain look like? So if you are a company that is producing chocolate or involved in fisheries or involved in some other classic commodity that we buy in the supermarket every day, what's behind that? And there's an alarming number of products where what is behind that, we know, is deeply, deeply unpleasant. So what are the obligations of the companies? What are the obligations along the way? And how much do they need to do? And we've seen the evolving law in this space in different jurisdictions. And the Modern Slavery Act in the United Kingdom that came into force has placed uh, a transparency obligation on certain companies who, who have a particular level of, of, of income to provide information about this and to provide a statement on their website. And we see differing approaches depending on if you're in a civil law or a common law jurisdiction about what you need to do. So we essentially were trying to work out what's the legal angle on this. We can make a film, fine, that's an awareness raising thing. But, but what is it that the lawyers, what's our USP? What's the bit that we're going to add here? Because there are lots of groups and charities working in this space, people on the ground helping survivors, helping people be empowered to either withstand or extricate themselves from situations of forced labor or human trafficking or some form of exploitation. There's lots going on, but it's growing. There, you know, it, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and its roots are, are, are completely multifaceted. It's highly complex. But what can lawyers do? What is the role? So what we've been trying to identify, in addition to making a short film that was, was trying to depict the tainted nature of the supply chain. So it was basically set in a supermarket and it had somebody going around picking up certain goods and they were basically covered in blood. So the idea is there is serious suffering. But anyway, we're just looking to see... How do you then empower a consumer? What is the consumer's role in all of this, let alone the business? But in terms of where we're going with the project, we're looking at different aspects. We're looking at the law. We're looking at how those different laws create inconsistent approaches for business that can be confusing. We're looking at what lawyers are advising business and how that plays out in terms of their obligations, both in the hard law sense and what we call as lawyers the soft law sense. One thing I saw as I was looking over kind of the brief of the research was talk of what what's called the non-punishment principle. And I really wasn't mm -hmm. sure what that was. So I'd love if you just tell, tell us a little bit about that and, and what it is and what impact it could have. Yeah. I mean, it's in essence, and it's, it's protected through international agreements and frameworks. It is essentially the protection from liability for against a criminal or civil offense. So in effect, what you've got is victims of forced labor who've committed unlawful acts are essentially they've committed them as a direct consequence of being subjugated by virtue of their conditions and, and that being subject to forced labor should not be found or should not be penalized as a consequence of that because it's almost as if their ability to choose has been taken away from them. So we've, you know, there, there's a fantastic report written by the former UN Special Rapporteur, uh, Mary Grazia Giamarinaro, who um, reported in July last year. And it's quite a short paper, but if anyone's interested, it's worth a read because it simply sets out what nations need to do to respect that more. And in fact, there's been a really interesting European uh, court case recently against the UK involving Vietnamese 
young people who were working in a cannabis farm and were essentially convicted of that, but they were actually trafficked. They weren't. So, so again, the non-punishment principle should have applied there. So that's a very obviously high level summary, but it's a really interesting context that we're looking to try and study more and see what's being done out there through jurisdictional case studies and then try to raise awareness of the fact this needs to be better applied. So prosecutors, law enforcement, courts, etc., are much, much more aware and conscious of that in their dealings. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. What a terrible thing, right? If I'm if you're being enslaved already and you know you're being forced to do something illegal against your will, and then you get arrested and put in jail for doing that illegal thing, it's, it's just a horrible situation, yeah. obviously very unjust. You know, yeah. from a communication perspective, just think about it from a consumer standpoint, it's very hard for me to understand if you know if anything bad is happening in the supply chain of the products that I'm buying. You know, mm-hmm. so coffee is an example. And there's actually a lot of stuff on uh, like a lot like you can find the the labels that say, hey, this is rainforest approved or whatever it is. Right. That that, you know, that there's a kind of a good supply chain. there. I'm sure that they're still missing some things. But yeah. if I just look at the grocery aisle and there's a bunch of different coffees there, I don't know what the supply chain is yeah. for those. Yeah. Unless I go way out of my way to try to dig into it. Even I came home and tried to Google it and still couldn't find out much on it. Yeah. You know, unless they tell me blatantly here's a supply chain and it's good. I don't yeah. know the difference. And most other products beyond coffee have no background at all. Yeah. And I think none of us realize the amount of pain that's in the supply chain to get the products to us at such a low price. Exactly. Um, so exactly. there's think, a lot more, yeah. there's a lot more awareness need, of raising needed because, yeah. you know, until relatively recently, I didn't realize that there's complete horror that sits behind basic seafood items like prawns, for example, in, in, in the Thailand fishing industry, has been historically highly, highly problematic. And there's been a bunch of measures taken and organizations working with the Thai government, and there appears to be improvement. But, you know, I have no idea. I was happy eating prawns without the faintest clue that there was this absolute horror sitting behind them. But, you know, the same is true with tinned tomatoes. The same is true with chocolate. You know, you've got a whole range of commodities out there where, you know, you, you buy them quite frequently. They're not that expensive necessarily, but what sits behind it, the human cost is really quite shocking. Yeah. From a communication perspective, I think as consumers, we need to ask more questions and try to get more clarity as companies. They need to ask more questions because often they don't probably know what's in their supply chain. And then they need to communicate with the consumer that, hey, this is kind of how we're making a difference, making an impact. So it's just a fascinating space, I think. So the third piece I want to dig into briefly, because we've already talked about it a bit in the past with Kieran and the work that he's done. I know he was very focused on the sexual harassment piece, but you're doing a lot of work on the gender side as well, just broadly, I think inclusivity and gender at senior levels. So tell me a little bit about that research. Yeah, I mean, diversity and inclusion has been an issue within the IBA in recent years. Its, Its prominence has grown as it has societal wise. So that's a really good development, particularly looking for proper diversity on the panels and on the events that we hold, making sure it's not the classic white male spread of folk that get the platform. So that's a really important change and trying to bring on board a more diverse membership, more younger people, more women. And the project itself is is, is very specific. It's very targeted. It's, It's looking at the number of women in leadership roles across the different jurisdictions that we've chosen to be representative of a world picture and across 
four different practice areas within each jurisdiction. So we're not just focusing in, as I said earlier, on private practice, which a lot of studies have done. We're also looking at the public sector. So the government based civil civil society lawyers. We're looking at the judiciary and we're looking at in-house communities. So we're looking across four different legal work areas in 15 different countries. And it's across almost a decade. We've got a nine year period of action. So every three years we take quite an extensive data gathering exercise where we've got identified contacts in each country under each of those headings. And we're looking to see how many women are within the leadership roles. And we've got definitions for that. So there's, there's a real kind of bit piece that sits behind this with the detail. But in essence, we're looking to understand what are those figures doing? How are they moving? What are the initiatives in place to influence those figures? If there are things like quotas or direct kind of activity on leadership training, And then we're looking just to see what the progression looks like across that decade. And and that fits in with the UN sort of sustainable development goal, which has that 2030 aspirational point in time. So we've chosen it deliberately to marry up with that period. And hopefully we're going to see some changes for the good. Uh, We don't know if COVID will have the negative impact. It is meant to have a negative impact on gender progression, but whether that will fit in the law, we'll see. And we're also going to take individual stories. So we'll have a narrative of people in each jurisdiction, only a very small number, to see how their careers play out across that decade as well. Storytelling is such a powerful way, I think, to to, to get people to really feel, you know, what, what yeah. you're talking about here. Data's great, but you gotta link stories to tell to tell a yeah, great story. Now, what what have you seen that have been the most impactful ways that leaders have been able to move the needle here? Well, I think I wouldn't want to preempt anything that we're going to find or the recommendations mm-hmm. we might make at some point, because it's quite hard to say at this stage, because I think there is still a big journey and some jurisdictions are way ahead of others in this. And indeed, within a jurisdiction, there's a vast difference between what's going on in the government side compared with the private sector side and even the in-house side. So you see enormous differences even within one country, depending on the sector you're looking at. I think you know, some companies are going quite radical and they're setting quotas or targets and they're saying, right, this is what we want. And one of the difficult choices that we made when when entitling this project, and this was very much something I was pushing for, which wasn't necessarily popular and, and maybe I'll live to regret it, but it's called 50-50 by 2030. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a sort of soundbite, but we were looking to try and say, you know, what's the gender population? Well, just over 50%, in fact, women globally, but 50-50 is where we want to see balance. We want to see that scales balancing across the leadership and decision-making posts across the legal profession. And the legal profession is such an important part. I mean, I know lawyers are often very unpopular, but when you think about the context in which they're working, they're often the guardians, the bastions of justice, whether they're the judges or the representatives of justice. They're making the laws that we all have to live by. They are setting disputes and and, and and resolving disputes and creating legal paperwork that fits for every part of your life, whether you're buying a house, whether you're getting divorced, whether, you know, whatever it is, there will be a lawyer somewhere in that piece. And I think for that reason, having that balance of both female and male perspectives is so important in the, in the laws that we're all abiding by and the application of those and the judgment upon those. And so I think it's bold, but I think it's something that needs to be said and we'll see where we get to. That's interesting. I've never really thought about the fact 
obviously how law impacts every aspect of our life, right? And the fact that leadership roles in law tend to be more male dominated like they do in a number of other industries, but how that might impact the balance of law, say for female versus male and outcomes that that you and I have in, in everyday legal matters. I've never put all that together. So that's really interesting. So, so as a woman who has obviously risen up through the ranks in the legal world and is now in somewhat of a leadership role in the legal world. I'm curious if you have any advice for women who are just starting out and kind of what they can be doing to to best position themselves or to take advantage of opportunities that might be in front of them. That's a really interesting question because it's such a, it's such a unique decision-making process for each individual, depending mm-hmm. on the context in which they're working and their own passions. I mean, I always believe you've got to be passionate about what you do. It was something my father always said, you've got to love what you do. You know, work takes up such a big chunk of our lives. If you don't love it, it's a pretty miserable existence. So if you don't love what you do, change it as much as you can. And I recognize that's a slightly you know, luxurious thing to say, because some people can't change what they're doing, or they don't have the confidence or the skill set. But certainly, if you're working within the law, you're reasonably skilled if you've got there in the first place. So choose a direction that makes you feel alive and makes you feel inspired, even if it's something that's dry and something that doesn't matter, just whatever it is that makes you feel that you're happy and, and fulfilled. And then take chances, say yes more, but within the scope of what's reasonable to you. I mean, I've managed to have three children. I was a single parent. You know, it was hard to navigate some of this. And there are balances and choices that you make along the way that are undoubtedly difficult at times. And I still believe that quite often women are carrying the vast majority of domestic burdens. And and that seems to be applicable in most countries and across all sectors. So you've got to balance that out. And you've got to try and find ways of giving yourself space so that you don't burn out and being reasonable with what you can achieve within the work setting. So whilst I said say yes, that doesn't mean at all you know at the expense of your health and at the expense of your of your sanity. I think saying yes, I mean in terms of opportunities and, and interesting different things that come your way because they can open other doors that you might not have expected. And that's been that's been the case for me throughout my career. Taking a chance on something different has led me down different paths, whether it was doing public inquiries whether it was working with judges, whether it was moving into more policy government work. You know, I've tried different things because I didn't want to stagnate. And I think that that gives you a really interesting breadth of skill set, experience. And and perhaps the only disadvantage is that you become perhaps more jack of all trades as Mm. opposed to really specialised. But for me, it's always kept the interest there. I've never been bored. Interesting. Yeah. So follow your passion and be open to new opportunities and taking chances when they make sense. So that's really cool. I didn't necessarily expect you to go down the follow your passion. I think it makes a lot of sense because you're going to perform your best at something you're really passionate about. And I think that's important for everybody in every industry. And sometimes something that's hard for each of us to figure out, you know, understanding Mm -hmm. what we're passionate and excited about, especially in the realm of whatever it is we might be doing. Yeah. I mean, I think I always knew at university that I love criminal law. So I wanted to go into that. And then it, it's that that it, I haven't been fixated on only that. It took me in different opportunities. But that is at the core, I suppose, of much of what I've done. That was my personal interest. And I, I was lucky enough to be able to com, you know, combine that with my professional uh, activity. Very cool. Very cool. So just a couple questions left that I'd like to ask everybody who I have on the show. 
the first is that I just really believe in the power of conversations to be able to make a really significant impact on your life. So I always like to ask my guests if there's one conversation you could point to that you'd be willing to tell us about that had a really big impact on your life. I, I was thinking about this and there were so many and I, I could think of one positive and one negative. I remember the, the negative one was with an old boss many, many years ago. And he wasn't a terribly inspirational character at the best of times. And, uh, you know, I think I was I, I was sort of doing a reasonable job, but I, I just had my first child. So I was on my own as a single parent. And he, he was a very old fashioned, much older man. And uh, I think I was suggesting that I could take on a greater level of complexity in my casework because I was ready and I was capable. I remember him saying to me, Sarah, you know, you know, an elephant when you see an elephant. And I said, sorry. He said, well, no, an elephant, an elephant, and you're not an elephant. Like, <laughs> they're thinking, is he being rude about my size or what the hell is he talking about? And what, what, I, I just kind of like, you know, looked like I was dumbfounded. And, and he said, well, what I mean by that is when you know someone who's really brilliant and going places, they're the elephant. I said, so you're saying to me, I'm not wow. brilliant and I'm not going places. I thought, well, stuff you. I'm going to make sure that that is the wrongest you've ever been and I you know I'm not saying that I'm sort of the most important person by a long way but I certainly have made something more of my career than he did but it was the most extraordinary <laughs> thing to say to someone because I think he thought well you've come back you've had a child you're not really going to be going anywhere it was that sort of old-fashioned you you know you're on your own as well so you're sort of slightly on that bad side of the of the equation so I, I anyway but it's it's good because it made me think I will never have anyone say that to me again. I will make a difference. I'll do my best. I work hard and I will hopefully be reasonably successful at what I do and credible. And uh, yeah. yeah, there we go. So yeah. that was, I think that was the negative. I mean, I, I probably won't bore you with all the positives, but I have had some really inspirational people in my life. And and when I mentioned earlier about saying yes, that actually came from um, Helena Kennedy, who's a, a very well-known human rights lawyer. And she's the director of, of the Institute, the Human Rights Institute. And and she's always been exceptionally motivating and a real inspiration to me about just how much she's achieved and done. So I always sort of look up to that and think, wow, that is that is a really incredible career and what an impact she's had. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I like how you use a negative to a positive. They used it for your own motivation, and it's interesting because it goes back to the topic of gender, right? And the bias that I think a lot of women face, especially when they come back from having a child, yeah. that uh, maybe you know what you can accomplish has been diminished because now you have a family to lead. Yeah, when that's obviously not necessarily true. So that is uh, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Second question: Think about all that you've accomplished in your career. If there's one communication skill that you could have had in more abundance that would have made it a lot easier for you, what would that have been? I think possibly, and again, I really struggled to try and think about the answer to this. My first thought was a communication skill. Well, I'd have loved to be able to speak many, many languages fluently. I think mm-hmm. the, the relationships that you develop through language are just extraordinary. And, and I, you know, I spoke at the beginning about languages and how much I think they're important. I'd love to have been able to say, yes, I can communicate in Russian or Chinese or some of these languages that are less accessible, perhaps, for for a lot of people. You know, there's fewer people that speak them fluently and not so many that, you know, that speak English in in those jurisdictions necessarily. That's, that's, I know, again, not the the total generalisation, but I, I think the skill of speaking a language is fantastic, but also the skill of really 
not over-apologizing. I think when I was younger, I felt I over-apologized a lot for things that I didn't need to apologize for. And again, I'm wondering if that's to some extent a gender thing, or, you know, I I can be really overly self-deprecating. And I think that that made me look weaker, perhaps. Equally, I don't like arrogance. So it was how you navigate that path between looking like you're being cocky or arrogant, which isn't attractive, but but having humility and yet confidence at the same time is quite quite a difficult thing to to actually show and and give off as as a sort of way of being. I think. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It's a difficult balance to strike, and and figure out. We just kind of have to find the right balance individually. But I certainly over apologize sometimes, especially mm-hmm. in kind of uh, professional situations, whether it's like with my leadership or with a client of mine. You know, I tend to be more self-deprecating, more I'll take the blame and follow my sword, which sometimes is honorable and sometimes goes too far. (laughs) But I'm also very much against the thinking that never say you're sorry. I think that's just silly. Sometimes we make mistakes and you need to apologize for them and that's okay. So it's a really interesting dynamic. So last question for you, either alive or dead, somebody you know or just know of, who would you say is the best communicator that you know? Well, again, I mean, oh gosh, I've... Well, having been a barrister, I met so many barristers who were fantastic. You know, I'd be in court with them. I'd be blown away by their articulation of of the case, of the arguments and of their complete (laughs) demolishing of a witness. I mean, that's a communication skill, which is quite extraordinary, this advocacy. And then there are public speakers. I mean, again, I come back to Helena, who, who I've got to know over the last two and a bit years, and she speaks with such eloquence and such confidence. And She's obviously in the House of Lords, so she's speaking with the highest sort of echelons of, of, of the UK system, the, the Parliament system, and she's speaking with all sorts of people across every level. And I think that in itself is a fabulous thing to be able to do. You can speak with the highest of the high or the lowest of the low across every race and gender and sound empathetic and knowledgeable and kind and decent. And, and that skill is just really really impressive and not many people have it or have it only in a certain context so I've always been inspired by by my experience with her but I think like I say I think that is a skill that quite often barristers have it's the skill of being able to deliver a point with confidence and with real sense and reason so yeah I'm sorry I can't really hone it in on any anything any more sort of obvious person but um oh that's fine that would be uh my immediate thought and uh I always I love hearing people who can public speak but you know equally I think there is something to be said for comedians and I love stand-up comedians who have the most extraordinary confidence to stand before a room and just without a script through their memory or even just in terms of an immediate response. What a fabulous communication skill because they're making people laugh. I mean, that is a wonderful thing to be able to do. So a really good, really good stand-up comedian, I always think is a fabulous communicator in that context. No, I agree. And it's an amazing skill to have. I mean, to think to get up there, all you have is a microphone Mm. in your mind and you completely overwhelm an audience and overtake them and entertain them for like a good hour or more. Yeah. It's an amazing skill and uh, a terrifying situation to think about myself being in. You know, I'm afraid to like make a joke with one person, let alone in front of an audience. Yeah. Um, so it is, it is an amazing skill set. That's really interesting. So final yeah. question, where can folks connect with you? Where can they learn more about the research that you guys are doing and, and, and where can they just get in touch with you? Well, we've got our IBA website and within that, under the section that's headed outreach, there is the legal policy and research unit, which has the details of me and my team and contact points. 
I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter under my name, Sarah Carnegie. So I can easily be found on those platforms. So yes, I mean, as I say, the, the main one, the obvious one is through the IBA website, which has the details of our projects and an email address. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I it was really interesting to get to dive into a bunch of really fascinating topics I don't that I don't get to talk about much or think about much. It's also interesting to think about how they all intersect with communication in one way or another and across different industries as well. So mm-hmm. thank you for enlightening us today. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to be here. Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the Communication Nation. We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.